1: This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al-Samid. So this is the last one of the year or uh, sort of first one of uh, the new year. So either way, we're looking back at 2016 and forward to 2017, because right on the heels of this, Sam, you're running off to CES and the uh, Detroit show.
2: Yep. I've got an 825 a.m. flight to Las Vegas in the morning for CES. And then uh, next week I, I get back here on Saturday and I'll be um, right into Detroit Auto Show on Sunday.
1: So are you super excited to see the uh, Faraday future vaporware? I predict it's going to be vaporware. I'll be surprised if it's not.
2: Um, well, we'll, we'll see something. I hope, um, <laughs> you know, uh, hope, you know, I, I, I sincerely, you know, given that I know people, I know some of the people that are working at Faraday, um, you know, and there are, you know, there's a lot of really smart people there. I certainly hope that they manage to succeed and get something into production. Um, I'm not hopeful. But I, you know, I mean, I don't I don't expect it to happen, but we'll see.
1: That's true. And I shouldn't say vaporware either. They're definitely working on things. They just have a lot of other challenges going on. So we may never actually see their hard work materialize. So I, right. sh- I shouldn't throw stones.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they do have real <laughs> prototypes now that they've managed to, fin- you know, film, um, you know, racing against uh, Teslas and Ferraris and Lamborghinis, you know, and drag races. So, you know, proving once again that. Um, a high powered, uh, electric motor can do wonders over a quarter mile. Um, and you know, the, it can be an extremely efficient power, powertrain. Um, you know, it's just a question now of, can they get it into production and, you know, do it reliably and, um, you know, profitably more, which is more important actually.
1: That's every automaker's conundrum right there. Right.
2: And then we'll, <laughs> we'll be coming back to that one a little later on when we get into our reader questions.
1: Yeah, and so we should start with what we're driving. And this week, I'm not driving anything that I wasn't driving last week. Uh, so I've still got the S60 uh, cross-country and um, the Ford Crown Victoria. And uh, m- most of the miles I've been putting on the Jeep Grand Cherokee. I put winter tires on that, and it's been delightful. Uh, we actually got some winter weather.
2: It's been been awesome. So <laughs> so last week, you were less than enthused about the uh, the V60 cross-country. Um, has, has your opinion changed at all with, with time?
1: Uh, no, I mean, I think the, the criticism still stands, you know, it's, it is a, a nice car. It's not, it's not terribly priced for the segment it's in. Um, cause it's, you have a hard time getting that particular model much over $50,000. Um, you know, so it's, it's luxurious, which you would expect for the class that it's in um it definitely has the performance you know it handles well it rides okay uh you know it has plenty of power and it has all-wheel drive which actually works you know decently well my my problem with it though is that it's it's not very utilitarian and i think that that's just you you know down to the car itself you know that the s60 is is small has a very small trunk and it's a small back seat it's thirsty um, with that t5 engine no matter what the automatic transmission that's in it is like it's just it's a very nice design exercise it's a nice premium all-wheel drive small sedan you know it's a sort of it's a compact car it's really not that big um and i, I guess that's my biggest criticism is like you know, it, it has this pretense of you know crossover utility and it, it really like it's if you want real utility in a car like that, just just buy a Corolla because it's going to be larger, more efficient and uh, really do better
2: for you. So. Or be, better uh, better yet, the Corolla IM, which was the, the former Scion IM.
1: Right. I mean, it. it's I understand the position that Volvo was in. Like, this is probably the oldest thing in their portfolio right now. And I'm sure that they're working really hard on replacing it and they would dearly love to have a new S 60 out that's on their newer architecture that is more efficient to space and fuel economy and performance wise, it's not here yet. Uh, so this is what they've got.
2: Um, well, I do think, I do think we'll see, uh, starting to see the the 60 series being replaced uh, later this year, um, possibly as soon as Geneva, I think they're going to show the V 60 uh, and then yeah. the the S 60 later in the year or the, the sequence may be changed, but certainly the first of the 60 series models will be will be uh, revamped this year onto the new uh uh platform that they share with the 90 series
1: yeah and you know that 90 series platform is not perfect either uh my biggest issue with that is sort of the ride handling structural rigidity uh kind of stuff you know i i really love volvo's safety uh, like the the actual passive safety stuff that they've been brilliant at for years that I even mean, i can kind of i'm all set with the active safety business <laughs> but <laughs> um you know the 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 cars are very well engineered to to crash and not kill you so that doesn't mean that you know you can go be an idiot like there's there's still physics involved um but they're they're good safe solid cars they're very well built uh they're just you know they're almost like they're they're like they're a good solid c plus or b minus i'd say they're a b minus student in a class full of you know straight a's when you consider that they're going against Mercedes, BMW, and Audi, um, and Lexus, really, uh, in a lot of ways, they're in this weird place. You know, like they're not—they're not quite the those Germans, but the, I mean, they're almost like they're almost like Buick. You know, like they're in that like uncanny valley. Mm-hmm. You know, if that makes any that's sense. A, that's um, actually a
2: really good way of putting it—is the uh, uncanny valley where it, you know it—it's it everything when you look at it, everything looks really close to right and it feels really close to right but there's just something that's not quite there yeah and it's it's you know it it's it feel it's really it becomes really noticeable when it's so close but it just misses
1: yeah and like that's that's really the whole volvo lineup you know they've they've done the as much as i hate to say because i just i love the new styling language i love the interiors of the the xc90 and the v90 and you know the s90 those those cars that they're beautiful and they're really well finished and turned out but the ride is crashy uh they either the interface sucks <laughs> you know and i'm not going to stop complaining about that until they fix it and it's that's holding them back okay fair enough so you've got the cadillac ct6 this week so yeah what do you think <laughs> of that is that also in the uncanny valley or does cadillac like car and driver just said cadillac now makes cars for germans
2: Yeah, I think I think that's a pretty good assessment. Um, You know, it's funny. uh, I was thinking back to my high school days when I played water polo. One of the other guys on on the water polo team uh, had this early 70s Cadillac uh, Sedan DeVille with a 500 (laughs) with a 500 cubic inch uh, V8, you know, and, you know, we used to take like half the team in that thing, you know, to go to (laughs) go to away games. And, uh, you know, I mean, this thing was just massive on the outside. And it had a massive engine and sucked out massive amounts of gasoline. Um, Yep. You know, and going over, you know, railroad tracks and potholes, you know, it would float and bounce, you know, in the classic, you know, American land yacht way. And the CT6 is so the opposite of that. I mean, it's buttoned down. Everything feels really solid. And this is a car with a two liter four cylinder engine in it. You know, it's a big you know, comfy luxury sedan, you know, big, um, you know, it's it's very I, I, w- I would say it's um, like, uh, you know, like the rest of the Cadillac car lineup. You know, it's actually very distinctly American in the way it looks and f- and and feels. I think, you know, it does. I would not confuse it with the Germans, with the premium German brands. You know, it's got its own distinct style. Um but I think in terms of the way it functions, the way it drives, you know, it's, it does feel much more German than it ever has. Um, you know, I think it's really well executed. Uh, you know, there's not a whole lot I would complain about on this car, uh, you know, for, for a car this big, you know, with a, a two liter engine to perform as well as it does, you know, I mean, it's, it's not going to be a drag racer, but it's got, you know, 295 foot pounds of torque and two, I think 255 horsepower. Um, you know, it, it does really well uh with, you know, the you know, and for its size, it's a relatively lightweight car. It only It's only about thirty six hundred and fifty pounds.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. They did a lot of stuff to really remove weight or just just keep the weight down on that car. The the engineering that the body and whites got a lot of different materials in it and a lot of just you know, a lot of high strength steel and aluminum and they, they do some stuff to make sure it's not too heavy. Yeah. I
2: mean, and, you know, GM's developed some really interesting new um, manufacturing techniques to be able to, to weld aluminum and steel together. Something that, you know, nobody's ever been able to do before in cars. Um, So, you know, it's, it's got, you know, mix of different steel alloys, you know, for, for strength and lightweight and and aluminum and um, magnesium. So you've got a bunch of different metals in there. And it, it all just works really well. The car feels really solid. It's quiet. Um, you know, it's got you know very good ride quality. Uh, you know, so there's there's not a whole lot I would complain about in this thing. Um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't have um, you know all of the the most advanced driver assist features that you can get uh, on the CT6. You know, or you know, and that you'll you know even the stuff you'll be able to get later this year with the uh, Super Cruise. Uh, but it's it's really good.
1: Yeah, I was um I actually came off the highway earlier this morning um and I was I got behind a CT6 and it was a a 3.0 TT set on the trunk lid. So the the one with the four cylinders is that's, that's sort of like the entry Yeah, that's grade. the base model. Yeah. Um it's like so the CT six replaces the XTS, right? Like that's sort of its play. The
2: the XTS is still in production. Uh, I think it's going to be in production for about another year or so, mainly for the livery market. Um, You know, so they must love that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, but in terms of retail sales, you know, the, the, the CT six is really the one they're focusing on now. Um, And it, you know, it there was actually there were plans for another car above the ct6 um a true flagship um and it seems like that's on hold for now uh you know there at some point there will probably be something based on uh based on the ct6 platform that you know is a little bit even more upmarket from this car um but you know even with what they've got I, th- I think it's it's really good and it you know in, in what I wrote up in my review of the uh, the xt5 the cross the midsize crossover you know I think what they're really doing right now is they're putting more of their focus on getting some more crossovers into their lineup because that's really where the market is today you know as good as the ATS the CTS and the ct6 are uh, you know, that's not what customers today want. They want crossovers and in a variety of different sizes. And so right, you know, that's where Cadillac is putting all their energy right now is to getting it um, I think an XT2 and an XT three and an XT seven, you know, in various sizes, uh, from small to large crossovers.
1: Yeah, and that's what we had talked about when we uh were talking about the XT5 the other week was uh as much as the sedans are great. Um, they just don't have enough proliferation in that that market where they, they really need it. You um, it's funny you mentioned that delivery market too with the XTS. The livery market around here, the the high end guys, uh, they got Continentals now. I've seen a couple of Continentals with livery plates around. Um, so they <laughs> they love the uh, front wheel drive based big sedans. Um, like Cadillac is pitching the CT6 at the five series, the six series, uh, you know, the E class They're they're basically saying like, this it's a seven series size car. That's about the weight of a five series. Um, and, and you know, every, it, the natural comparison is, I guess, to go with BMW, but can it play in that market? I mean, in that realm, I mean, the, those are other vehicles that have gone to, you know, turbocharged four cylinders and, and some of the stuff that seemed preposterous, you know, even 10 years ago, uh, now everybody's doing it and and it seems to work.
2: Yeah, I would, I would say so. Uh, You know, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's even, uh, you know, it's certainly competitive with the, um, the, the five and the E, the E class. Um, And even at the entry level, you know, if you put it up against an entry level S class or seven, um, you know, I think it can, I think it compete reasonably well there as well. It does, uh, you know, and, yeah, you know, there's a the car the the example that I have doesn't have all of the features that are available in the CT6 um even now, you know. So, you know, you can get a CT6 with all-wheel drive. You saw the 3 liter twin turbo V6 which has, you know, about 400 horsepower. Um, yep. you know, so and there's um a plug-in hybrid uh that's coming in the spring. Uh just launched in China and it'll be going on sale here uh, I think in March. Uh, you know, and that's going to have uh the 2 liter with um, a plug-in hybrid powertrain with uh, about 32 33 miles of electric driving range uh, they showed that at the LA Auto Show uh, in in November you know so and then you know they'll have Super Cruise coming later this year as an option as well so i think you know it's it's going to be pretty competitive with with uh, the various you know with the the whole lineup that's available from the Germans in terms of the sedans um, it's just a question now of you know, is that you know is that going to be enough to hold Cadillac over until they can get the the cross uh, the crossovers out that the market is demanding?
1: Well, and it's I guess my question is too like is it going to be enough? It, was it the right place to put their resources? I suppose you know, big sedans are just they're, they're not where people are buying. Um, even the seven series doesn't sell as much as as the the five or the three. Um, you know, and and when you get down to you know, regular cars too. That Chevy doesn't sell a ton of Impalas against Malibu's would be my assumption. I haven't looked at the raw numbers, but you know, big sedans are just, they're just not where they once were. Um, yeah.
2: I think, well, I think at the time they were developing this, you know, they were, you know, it was actually supposed to be the beginning. You know, as I said, there was supposed to be another model above the CT six, uh, you know, a, a true flagship to really go head to head with the S class and the seven series and the, the Audi a eight. Um, you know, and that, that car seems to be on hold for the time being, but, you know, the, the technologies that are in the CT six are going to filter down into the next generation of ATS and CTS. Um, you know, and uh, though I'm sure, you know, there will also be pieces of this that are used, um, in the crossovers as well. And some of the, and, and probably in the XT, well, the XT seven is probably going to be based on the Lambda platform. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there will be, there will be technologies from this, you know, certainly some of the work they did on materials is going to filter into other models. So, you know, I, I think it was, um, you know, they probably would have been better off, um, getting, a, a another crossover out first. Uh, but you know, they did need, you know, to really be taken seriously in this, uh, segment in the premium segment. I think they, they also needed to have the big flagship sedan there as well.
1: Yeah, you know, I guess that's a fundamental difference I have with uh, their approach. Uh, you know, the Cadillac's chief marketing officer in their press materials, they quote him. Uh, it's Uwe Uwe Ellinghaus. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, he's, he says luxury brands are built from the top down. Um, I maybe I guess image-wise, sure, uh, but sales are built from the bottom up. So yeah. <laughs> if you want to if you want to sell and, some cars, and, sell the and, things ter- people are buying. Yeah,
2: I mean, in, in terms of volume, yes, the the sales are built from the bottom up. In terms of reputation, no, I think he's right. You build it from the top down.
1: Yeah, and I I agree with that. You know, it's a they have a patient owner, I guess, yeah. at this point.
2: Remarkably um, patient. I mean, they've been at this for fifteen years now. Yeah, um, yeah I was gonna say twenty. So well, <laughs> they've mean, been at it a while. Yeah, I mean, so, since they, you know, I think they really started around 2000, 2001, You know, um, work on the the CTS. You know, the the original Sigma platform, and then um, you know, moving. You know, expanding beyond that into uh, into the alpha platform uh, that underpins the current um, CTS and ATS.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, this the cars are amazingly good. There's no knock on the, the hardware at all. It's it's just that they're, they're not they're not selling as much as they need them to and uh you know i really i want to see cadillac succeed because i really do i see the effort that's been put in and and the product is is there this is not a cimarron you know what i'm saying like it's yeah and
2: you know that that's the funny thing you know thinking back to those days you know when we were riding around in that that big 500 cubic inch caddy you know at that back in those days the only four-cylinder cadillac was the cimarron you know which was literally a warmed over cavalier uh, you know, and it was a really horrible car. There was there was nothing good about the Cimarron.
1: You know what's amazing is to go back and read like the Motor Trend uh, first drive of the Cimarron, and not not the V six like the Cimarron. They they did get it a little bit more legitimate through its life, uh, but the original like four cylinder iron puke <laughs> with the four speed manual, yeah. <laughs> amazing I, I, what a love letter they wrote to that
2: <laughs> yeah well you know it was it was a tough time you know there wasn't a whole lot to, to choose from that was really worthwhile in the american auto industry in 1981
1: yeah yeah that's true I mean, you know limiting it to the american auto industry i can certainly i mean i can i can see it and y- you know you gotta do t- you you have to Have some deference to your largest advertiser sometimes. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure, sure. General Motors put an awful lot of ads in some of those magazines. Um, But all right, so the CT6 gets a a pretty good, pretty good scorecard from you. Um, Yeah, I would say so. You know, so
2: all right. Well, I mean, I wouldn't mind a CT6 V. You know, with uh, yeah, I see nobody would an LT4 (laughs) in
1: there. But yeah, yeah, that wouldn't suck either. It would not suck. I wouldn't mind an LT4 in anything. That's true. (laughs) My snowblower, Mm. my, (laughs) yeah. Um, So we just started 2017 and we, we could take a look back. You know, it's, the years are long. There's 365 days. Must we, must we look back at 2016? I I mean, we don't have to, it was terrible, awful, bad year. Uh, I wasn't around for 1968 and, um, I've heard, you know, but I I did read the book. And so now I feel like I can comment like an authority on it. Uh, (laughs) But um, there were echoes of 68 in 2016, but it was nowhere near as bad as Yeah, I mean, we didn't have
2: riots in the streets, you know,
1: kind (laughs) of we had. I mean, it was tense. Yeah. Let's just say it was tense. No, no, no major
2: American cities burned to the ground.
1: No no but there's always this year yeah Uh, (laughs) so to look back like what do you think was sort of the most significant uh automotive tinged happenings uh throughout the year and you know i actually went all the way back to last year's uh detroit show and was just sort of poking around with what we saw there and we we've seen a lot of a lot of stuff get introduced and i think a lot of like momentous stuff like the new ridgeline is was this year i'll I say that's momentous because I think it's a, you know, finally a a contender. Um, But the, the new, um, the new Raptor also, uh, the Bolt, you know, the Chevrolet, Chevrolet Bolt, the Volt. Then we saw some stuff sort of pass away too. Like the, the ELR is no longer with us, which I don't know that that's really a a great loss. Uh, (laughs) There's been a lot of uh, stuff about, you know, electric vehicles and like we were talking about faraday earlier you know there's just been a lot of those small manufacturers sort of popping up and all talking about electric and autonomous and all kinds of stuff so before i ramble too long uh what do you think sort of was the 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 highest points of 2016
2: uh, well you know certainly you know we've over the last several weeks we've talked quite a bit about autonomous vehicles you know and in term, you know, aside from the, you know, the new production models, I mean, there's been a lot of great production models that came to market in 2016. Um, you know, the, probably the biggest development has been the, the acceleration of development of autonomous vehicles, technologies, um, you know, and announcements from a bunch of automakers that, you know, they, they're going to have these vehicles on the road. You will see what kinds of volumes, uh, you know in 2020 2021 um you know i personally don't think that the volumes are going to be very big in that time frame i mean we're just i think it's going to be in the low thousands at the most uh, but you know we'll see um certainly you know everybody seems to be very bullish on it um you know electrification you know is big a big thing but you know we we've also had some of the the traditional issues you know we still had a lot of recalls um yeah, and a lot of high volume recalls uh certainly you know the the whole takata airbag thing just keeps rolling along um you know there's still tens of millions of vehicles with takata airbags that have yet to be repaired because they don't have suitable replacement and in, uh inflators for those airbags yet um yeah well and, and takata they just continue
1: sort of like their slow motion implosion uh you know, like how are they going to stay in business to actually make the parts to uh, replace all the the defective airbags?
2: Well, I know? I know you know a bunch of automakers are actually have actually been going to other suppliers um, to get replacement inflators made, you know, to the um, to the same specs, you know, to so that they can go into where the Takata inflators are being used. So they've gotten suppliers like uh, TRW and Auto um uh, you know that are you know the other the other major suppliers of airbags, and um, you know getting them to produce uh, replacement parts for them, uh, so that they don't have to use Takata parts anymore. Um, and then you know um, you know there's been other other recalls as well on on other components. You know Honda just announced uh, uh, a recall of about half a million vehicles for I think it was uh, seatbelts, seatbelts on the Odysseys.
1: Um, something like that. I mean, that that brings up a a point that I was going to make too. Is we're so numb to recalls now, and because they're all huge, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand car recall back a few years ago would have been a big deal. Now it's just kind of like, okay,
2: whatever. Yeah, we just shrug about it. Like that's crazy. Yeah, I mean now you know now we're talking you know tens of millions of cars being being recalled. Um, You know, and and then you know of course you know we've got uh, issues like uh, the Volkswagen. Uh, diesel um, emissions uh, situation, which is, you know, that's just kept rolling along. We've now got settlements uh, in place for both the four cylinder and V6 diesels. um, And, you know, buybacks are occurring on the, uh, the four cylinders and will be happening soon for the, uh, for the V6s. So, you know, that that's another one that just keeps, keeps going along.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've got a stack of recall notices for our, for our grand Cherokee. And, you know, the, the problem is too, like they. They send out the recall notices because they're sort of obligated to, and uh, the notice is usually ahead of the actual supply chain, so replacement parts are, haven't necessarily made it down to the dealer level.
2: Right, and so they send out letters so, to say, you know, we're going to fix this, you know, and we'll let you know when we have parts available.
1: Right, and so you take it to your dealer, and you're like, oh, hey, I got this notice, and they're like, yeah, we don't have the parts
2: yeah,
1: <laughs> it's like it never gets back there. So I, uh, you know, I'm I'm driving around in a car that, like, nothing has happened, but, uh, you know, it's got like a, it's got an integrated power module recall, which I think is just sort of like a relay can like overheat and all, you know. Yeah, that's not great because that can cause a fire. Yeah, you that's know, it, never it never a good had, thing. Yeah, it has had one campaign for some Ooh. other uh wiring issue and stuff, and you know, like it, it, as a. Uh, vehicle owner too like it happens you know and like you can't always test and verify everything and sometimes the cars get out in the field and you know things happen to them and and so the recalls are like it is a good thing i i wouldn't hesitate to buy a car that has had some recalls and it's, it's getting harder and harder to find a car that hasn't had some recalls uh but it's it's just maddening sort of the inertia in the system like uh you know hey this thing is busted and we can't fix it yet, and then like you forget about it. You know, you you stack the recall notice somewhere and f- forget, and they don't
2: follow up with you or anything either. So it's it's. No, weird... they they usually do send a, a second letter once the parts are available to let you know.
1: Yeah, I should probably look at that. <laughs> Maybe this is my failing. <laughs> I don't drive that car. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> I'll get the cell phone call. <laughs> hey, um, the car burned to, to the ground.
2: <laughs> and, you know, un- unfortunately, a lot of these recalls, um, you know, are not the kinds of situations that are going to be able to be to be fixed with, for example, a software update. You know, in, in the future, you know, a lot of, you know, I mean, T- Tesla already, you know, avoided a bunch of recalls on things on its cars uh, by doing software updates over the air software updates. And, you know, in the future, every automaker is going to be doing that. But.
1: Well, the, the, but Tesla's a unique case too because uh, I remember when um, GM brought OnStar, their like chief of OnStar, chief marketing guy for whatever, uh, to talk to us up here in New England, and and you know, the question was posed like, "Hey, can you do OTA updating for you know the the vehicles, not just the OnStar system?" And and the answer was yes, especially on some of the newer cars. We certainly can they were really gun shy to do it where Tesla seems pretty gung ho about it. And, you know, every Tesla car has a built in wireless connection to a built in, you know, what is it? 3g. 4g four, four now. It's 4g yeah. now. Yeah. So, you know, not every GM car at that point did have that. Now they're starting to, to have quite a bit more that do. Um, so that makes this the speed faster. Cause part of the issue was with you know, the OnStar, I think was an embedded 2g system at that point. And, it was it was slow and so if you're pushing a software update like you want to make sure it completes before it's you know before the car needs to be run again and so you're scheduling it at a certain point like there's a lot of issues Yeah, I mean it's that, it's that not a around. it's
2: not a trivial matter to to do an over the air update um you know there's a lot of things you know you've got to make sure that it downloads correctly you know checks on everything um, you know you've also got to make sure that there's security mechanisms in place to make sure that uh unauthorized people aren't doing over the air updates on your car yeah
1: that's true because that's a, that's like a huge blinking neon sign like here's an entry point
2: yeah so i mean you know gm gm has done over the air updates um for the telematic systems for the communication systems and the infotainment systems what they haven't done yet is ota updates for safety critical systems and the same thing applies to other oems you know the, so far Tesla is the only one that's done over the air updates for safety critical systems like uh brakes or you know driver assist systems um and that's you know but that's that's a situation that's going to be changing in the next couple of years um you know everybody you know every car maker um is working with suppliers like uh Red Bend software which is now owned by Harman um and you know and other companies um that <clears throat> specialize in in handling the the over-the-air updates, you know, distributing them to the vehicles, make sure that they get downloaded correctly, that they get installed correctly, you know, to make sure that the things aren't done while the vehicle is in use. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things that have to be handled, um, you know, to make sure you don't create more problems than you're solving, but that, that will be coming over the next several years. Um, you know, and now, right now, you know, I think roughly about 40% of new cars, Uh, sold in the U.S. annually or, you know, have built in cellular connections. And, you know, by the early 2020s, that's going to be pretty close to 100 percent.
1: I guess my question is just who's going to pay for that?
2: Um, It's it's being built into the price of the car. So the consumer is going to pay for it. Um, You know, so what 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 they're doing, what manufacturers are doing now is uh, increasingly they are pricing in um, basic. Uh, telematic services as part of the price of the car. So they're building it into the bill of materials for the car, um, you know, and then, you know, you, you're not paying a separate subscription fee to get those basic services. And then they, they offer premium services on top of that. that you pay a monthly or an annual fee for, but for things like the, uh, for recalls and, and software updates, that's actually something that the automakers themselves are responsible for. Uh, or automakers and their suppliers are responsible for covering the cost of that so oh, i and, see
1: so anytime an automaker can squeeze the supplier to pay for the problem well it, <laughs> it, I, mean, I mean it, it
2: depends it depends i mean whoever is responsible uh, for right. the root cause right, yeah. of the problem so you know if the if the automaker was responsible for the problem they pay for it completely um if it's the supplier um, then there's usually a split you know part part of the cost is covered by the supplier and part of it by the oem
1: yeah, well, and, you know, and I, go, I, I say that not to be flipped, but, you know, these days, too, these suppliers are uh, much more integral to the process than they had been at, at one point. It's not they're not just necessarily getting handed a spec sheet and saying, like, build this thing. Oh, yeah, they're,
2: they're uh, heavily involved in the engineering of these vehicles, which is why they're they're also, you know, increasingly responsible for the cost of any recalls, whether it's requires bringing the car back to a dealer or doing an over the air update.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's good and bad, you know. Like it's a real pain to go and get your maps updated, and your if you can add extra functions just over the air, that that's cool. Yeah. Um,
2: well, things like maps, you know, are those are the sorts of things that will be updated, and you know, that'll be those are things that they're pricing, you know, pr- building into the price of the car. So you won't see a separate line item for that. It's just something that's part of the MSRP when you buy a car going forward
1: yeah and that's the way to do it quite honestly um the issue i guess too is like if you're if you're increasing a cost in that place like what do you where, where else are you removing costs so that you're not or is just the price rising by that much percentage you know
2: <laughs> so more more of the latter have you looked at the price of new cars lately uh yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm still paying one uh so yeah so i 2016 is is sort of we're on the cusp of a lot more technology and a lot more connected technology. You know, we're going to see – we haven't seen it yet, but we've seen talk about it, you know, the V2V systems um, that we talked about uh, and 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 V2I and V2 – you know, just all the, the cars connecting and talking to th- their surroundings and other vehicles. Um, that's going to be good, I think, in a lot of ways, and I think that's going to alleviate some of my – fears about the proliferation that we did see in 2016 of autonomous systems um you know just all the questions that 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 opens um one thing i also saw in actually two things i saw in 2016 these are a little bit lighter um i saw a continuing uh just barrage of utter crap coverage from auto sites (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, why not? Uh, we got lots of stories about guys caught for speeding, you know, outrageous stuff. And just, I don't know. I mean, it's part of the reason why I wanted to start this podcast, which is there's so much bullshit.
2: Yeah. I mean, on. you know, I think, we, you know, we had a question from a, a listener, you know, about you know, why why we're no longer with that other site. You know, and, you know, I actually left Autoblog back in 2010, you know, because things, yeah. you know, things just didn't work out there, you know, and I needed I needed to do something else. Um, you know, so I went off in, the, in a different direction for a while. You know, you stuck around until a few months ago uh, doing the podcast. Um, you know, uh, you know, we, we can't really talk about why others, you know, like Zach, uh, um, I can't, I think. Well, yeah, well, his I name. Mean, Zach,
1: yeah. Zach Bowman. Zach Bowman um, yeah. So really like, honestly, my tweet was basically that, that is most of the, 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 the story. Like, you know, it's an industry. So people move around in yeah. the industries and, you know, you
2: look get at, a better look job. Look at the masthead you, of any publication and, you know, it changes yeah. over time.
1: Um, and it's very interesting to look at the mastheads of automotive publications and then look at the PR departments a few years later. Yeah. <laughs> and see where well, those people have gone. Yeah,
2: And that's, you know, that's something, you know, a lot of, you know, the journalism business is it's a tough business to make a living in now more than ever. Correct. And if you, you know, if you've got a family to support and a mortgage to pay, and you know, college to pay for for your kids, things like that, um, you know, you need to have a decent income, and it's hard to do that. You know, writing for, you know, just writing for a website, um, you know, or even even working for one of the major publications, one of the long, you know, traditional publications, you know, so a lot of a lot of people that I know, you know, over the last five or six years, you know, have gone gone over to the the pr side of the business you know um you know and th- they're you know they're working for the car either working for the car makers or for agencies uh supporting the car makers you know and actually it's not just in the auto industry it's in every business you know, you, you know in the tech business and you know everywhere you look you, know, you see journalists that are going over to you know we like, we like to call it going over to the dark side um yeah but yeah you know, and you know it, it's, you know, it's just another part of the business. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I did it for, you know, three and a half years and it's, I'm glad I did it, you know, cause I, I learned a lot doing that. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, you know, it was a valuable experience for me and, you know, for, for some people, it's something that they find that they like to do. And for others, you know, they and turn around and come back after a while.
1: Yeah. And so, <laughs> automotive journalism is not my my primary means of supporting my family it just like it it can't be um just the way the way things are, are set up here it's it's really it's it's just like regular journalism in a lot of ways where the the pay is low the travel is is high you know to actually you know climb up if you look at guys like uh you know like like johnny lieberman um, who who rose pretty fast. Uh, you know, he went from, you know, Jalopnik to Autoblog to you know, basically running Motor Trend, right?
2: Like, uh, or at least write, writing a lot of the content there. Right. I would say writing a lot of content.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, Johnny, Johnny was willing to travel. He was willing to just, just work his, his balls off. And that's what you have to do. And it's, it sounds like it's this really cool thing. Um, It's an industry and increasingly the PR side is really what runs the story. So there's this real, it's not necessarily the dark side, but a PR pays a lot better when you work for a PR agency, you get paid a lot more than when you work for even a big name, like, you know, one of the the source interlink or
2: Hearst or whatever, you know, Uh, actually uh, it's the enthusiast network now.
1: uh, 10. Right. Like, so the, the, The pay is a lot lower doing the cool magazine stuff or the cool, you know, like blogging stuff. And it's it's I'm not complaining. It is what it is. Uh, That's what the market will bear. Um, If people want exceptional journalism, they will pay exceptional prices for it and that they just they expect it for free and (laughs) they expect these ridiculously beautiful photos and awesome videos and so that's supported by advertisers and all kinds of other deals so the big sites can afford to take a loss on the content because they they make it up on the uh the advertising uh smaller you know sites like like say uh, a couple of guys launching a podcast um we we can't afford to do that (laughs) we have the passion um but you know our
2: our costs are a lot lower too i mean you know it doesn't it doesn't really cost us a whole lot to do this
1: right we don't have a lot of overhead but we're not doing photo shoots we're not doing a lot of videos like and if we do that kind of stuff it's it's there's there's that trade-off you know um it's it's just to operate at that level is very expensive um and when you're an automaker and you're trying to launch models you want to make sure that that those those stories go off without a hitch and so having journalists or former journalists in those positions is a really good strategy because a they know how to package the story for all of the other you know colleagues that are still working in the industry so they know how to basically t- put it up put a bow on it and hand it to the guys and say, here's the story. And they, they, you can control the, the media drives. So and you bring everybody over to Spain. You do two waves of it over a couple of weeks, right? You bring everybody over to Spain and the, you know, they drive on the beautiful roads and the beautiful new car and you feed them like Kings and it's great uh the, the one issue is everybody has kind of the same story the but that's the story you want so as the automaker you love that everyone has the same story as the reader yeah i mean like today uh, i was looking around i've seen a lot of history of the bmw 5 series yeah <laughs> over the last week and i'm, I'm kind of scratching my head like it's cool content it's neat but also but how, like there's how something many, how many times on.
2: does it need to be how does the same story need to be rewritten
1: Right. And it's on every site, which leads me to believe that it's a, a, you know, a concerted effort by BMW to get that content out there, which is, it's it's fine. That's the way the game is played. But you as a reader, like that's, that's what you have to understand is like, it's an industry. And so uh, Chris got a job at GM. And so his job precluded him from being on the podcast anymore. Uh, So then it was, you know, me and Zach and rotating cast of characters well zach got uh a better gig at Roden track um when alex nunez went over to Roden track he snatched up zach and that that was cool um after a while zach uh left and did the crazy thing with uh the the sort of traveling around with his family um you know so he he basically got (laughs) kind of fed up with the industry too Uh, and and there was an autoblog podcast where we talked about it a bit uh you had I, I know there was contention uh to a certain degree um you're being very classy about it but we'll just leave it at that um and you you moved on and we've done other things and you've actually you popped up at road and track and you, you're working for navigant now so you're you're yeah i mean i you know, I, I did the, the i things. did
2: the the pr thing for a while with uh first with with gm and then uh with ford and then uh yeah did some i've done some writing for uh, motor trend and and road and track Um, And uh, since 2014, the last uh, almost two and a half years now, I've been uh, an analyst with Navigant Research, uh, which, you know, what I do there is, you know, I cover a variety of topics around advanced transportation technologies and mobility, autonomous systems, connected vehicles, cybersecurity. um, And I write research reports. Um, You know, we write we do Uh, myself and the rest of the analysts there we write um, syndicated research reports that uh, we sell you know that anybody can purchase and you know it helps the 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 readers you know and that you know that includes i mean anybody can buy them but you know most of our customers are um, you know car makers and suppliers and um, policy makers and regulators that you know, they'll they'll go out and, you know, they, they they look at our forecasts that we do. You know, we do analysis of the technologies and forecast how we think the technology is going to evolve in the marketplace. Um, and that helps our readers to develop their strategies. And then we also do custom research projects um, for specific clients as well. Uh, you know, and then, I you know, I also uh, write about stuff uh, for Forbes now, um, you know, which gives me a, another outlet to um, to get get my ideas about things and, you know, what I've always tried to do, you know, even from my earliest days at Autoblog, is, you know, inject some um, context and analysis into the things that I write. And, you know, so I'm fortunate enough to, to be able to do that, you know, as my full-time gig now.
1: Well, and that's one of the things that's missing from a lot of the sites. And that was one of the things that I felt I really wanted to, I, I wanted to do with the Autoblog podcast was, it was actually put more, um, more research and you know actually run it like a show um where we're we're really picking the topics and we're not just sort of skimming the news and, and picking what the, the top posts are and, and they're doing that to a certain degree now because of the, the when i left it was just you know my my day gig is is in advertising i am sort of creative director pro tempore (laughs) (laughs) right now Uh, um and i have been for like a year and a half at a very small agency so it's been been chaotic but it means a lot more responsibility and it's it's great but it it's also got a lot harder to do the autoblog podcast and they wanted to do it during business hours which makes total sense because they're all in the office and so I, i said you know what guys um this makes more sense to to hand over to you um Uh, I still got an open line to to pitch them on stuff, but, you know, I haven't pitched them anything that they've been tremendously excited about. And I think that's, that's partially just because, you know, where I'm at versus where the readers are at. But I really, you know, I, I miss the context because I think it's important for us to bring things up and then to explain like, you know, what it is and then, and then why it matters to people, not why we think it matters, but you know, both good and bad. Like you may think that infotainment is great. On the other hand, you may also find that it's a distraction, you know, those those sort of things. And of course, we bring some opinion to it here. But in general, like that, that is our job as as uh, at least pseudo journalists. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So, Um, you know, and and that's why we we put this show together, you know, to give us an outlet to to talk about, you know, some of these things that we think are important.
1: Yeah. So I think we've rambled about that one <laughs> a little bit. Um, and the the other thing uh, that I actually expected to happen in 2016, and now it, it hasn't really. So I expect it to happen in 2017. Um, we didn't see a Chinese automaker really crack the U.S. market with their brand. Uh, we we did see a Chinese built at least one um, enter our market. But uh, I think we're going to see that.
2: Um I think 2017 might still be early. I don't I don't I don't think we're going to see a Chinese brand enter the market this year yet. Maybe in 18, um, you know, uh, I, the 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 one Chinese built car that you referenced, you know, is the Buick Envision, um, their their midsize crossover that launched in 2016, which is built in China and then shipped over here. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I I think it's going to be tough. For Chinese brands to you know to break into the U.S. market anytime soon um, with any success, because you know we, we've got you know we've got the problem now of the the U.S. market is has kind of plateaued and it's likely to stay relatively flat. You know growth here is not, is projected to be less than one percent annually over the next decade. Um, you know so you know we're we're probably not going to get much over. 18 million sales, uh, you know, and we've already got a lot of brands here, you know, it's, it's a very competitive market. So it's good. Well, yeah. And the 18 million sales is like, that's a
1: really good year. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, we,
2: we've had two, two straight years of 17 and a half now, uh, you know, and it's gonna, it's you know probably going to stay somewhere between 17 and a half and 18 million for the next several years. Um, if it, in fact, if it doesn't, you know, actually decline a little bit. uh,
1: Right. I was going to say, when if it stays that high for the next several years, then you know, it's going to go down.
2: Right. Um, you know, so it's going to be tough, you know, given the number of brands we have here and the competition we have here, it's going to be tough for, for anybody new to break into this marketplace. Okay. I'll I'll buy it. I mean, you know, unless, unless they're able to offer something really affordable, that's still. You know, good. You know, because one, you know, one of the things, one of the issues we've got as well is, I think consumer expectations have risen a lot over the last decade. Uh, you know, so I, yeah, you know, I don't it. think, I don't think you can sell, I don't think you're going to be able to sell a cheap car here just on the basis of the fact that it's cheap. You know, no. it's you know, it's got to be at least as good as as the other stuff in the marketplace and offer comparable amenities and, and features. Yeah, and yeah, that's going to be tough to, you know, to really get at an affordable price point.
1: Yeah. I mean, a- ask Nissan how the Versa is doing or, or Mitsubishi, how the Mirage is doing. And and those are
2: both or, you know, I, Ford with the Fiesta or Chevrolet with the Sonic, you know, any any of these small cars, yeah. um, you know, they're they're having a tough time in the marketplace.
1: Well, and, and, you know, part of that, too, is like I feel that there's only so inexpensive a car can be. In this market, because of of the you know the the things it has to live up to, um, and and the, the equipment it has to carry, you know the, the performance it has to offer as well. You know we've seen this too. Like if you've got a car that's designed for a city that's just total gridlock in another part of the world, um, it's not going to work real well on our interstate highways out in the plains. You know, like it's it's just it's the wrong environment for it. But yet. Um, it's got to cope with that kind of difference here when you're in the States. So it's,
2: and you know, and then urban dwellers are going to be more inclined to just use ride hailing services than to buy a cheap car.
1: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I agree. Like it's, you can bring an inexpensive car to market, but it can't be cheap. Yes, those those are two different things. Um, so yeah, I don't know whether it's going to be just something price wise that we see from China. I I would expect we're going to see something, and we haven't really seen it yet. But we we all turn our eyes to Europe, at least as enthusiasts, and we we see what they've got, and we or you know Australia, right? And we say you know Australia has this this cool auto industry with its own version of like automotive island dwarfism it's great uh they get stuff that nobody else has and we want it but we don't really look at china and do the same thing we don't go oh hey the long wheelbase s60 would be cool to have here volvo it would solve the problem that i bitched about for two weeks straight um you know but but even you know even
2: australia yet. you know is they're losing their unique models as well you know i mean gm and ford are both shutting down their their australian manufacturing um and they're shifting over to bringing in cars from other parts of the world
1: yeah it's sad in one sense you know they lose a little bit of that unique flavor but it's like for gm and Ford, it makes total sense like they're just it's so expensive to to build cars just for that market yeah um yeah so all right so maybe 2017 is a little bit overzealous to think that we're going to see a chinese car uh what else do you think we're going to see in 2017 though we'll just we'll pivot <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> i think you know we're going to see um more uh, we're going to see some more plug-in vehicles uh coming to market um you know ju- just because you know manufacturers are you know they have to meet the uh california zero emissions vehicle mandates you know so they're gonna they're gonna be um I think actually we're going to, we're going to see more of them coming in 2018. Uh, I think we're going to see a flurry of next generation um, EVs that follow the, the bolt and the uh, Tesla model three with 200 mile ranges at, you know, $30,000 and under price points. Um, So, you know, Nissan is, is due any day now to, uh, announce the, the next generation, the second generation leaf. Um, Ford is going to have to uh, do a follow up to the Focus Electric and everybody else is, is, is promising 200 mile EVs. Um, so, you know, I think that's that's going to be something that happens. Um, you know, there's going to be there's going to be more talk about autonomous vehicles. But I think we're also going to start seeing as we get more and more testing on real world uh, conditions. I think we're going to see. Um, you know, more uh more issues popping up that yeah, are, I think that are actually gonna slow gonna, it down.
1: Yeah. Some of the air is gonna go out of that balloon where it's it's been such this this like buzzworthy thing. And you know, when it crosses over into like the mainstream news and they're just breathless about it, like, oh, you could drive your car, you know, your car can drive itself and you can read a book. Yeah, I think I think or, a lot you know, of the, the hype the, is
2: gonna the, deflate this year.
1: Yeah. The the worst was the I, I heard a story on uh, NPR and it must have been during the summer and their angle was basically like oh it's great for like if you go out drinking for a night I'm like a I don't ever <laughs> want to get that soused um, that I can't drive home like that that doesn't sound fun to me I did that maybe when I was like eighteen I'm I'm good I'm I'm, an, I'm a full well and grown ass
2: unfortunately not everybody's <laughs> as grown up as you
1: um no i mean i just i'm lazy I'll, I'll i'm a total lightweight i'll have two beers and fall asleep that's perfect <laughs> <laughs> um, but also like that really that's that's your first angle on reporting is like from the like hey i'm 22 and i like to go hang out and whatever like it was just such a weird like cognitive dissonance moment like of all of the angles you could have taken on your national news program covering this thing, that's the one you pick. It seemed wrong. Like maybe cover the fact that there's a lot of people who are, are elderly or without sight or, you know, in areas where there's no public transport and stuff like that. I see that as the tip of the spear. And I, on the other
2: hand, you know, if you consider the fact that about a third of all traffic fatalities, you know, are directly the result of drinking, um, you you know, Yes, you know, certainly, you know, having autonomous vehicles would enable mobility for a large part of the population that can't drive today. Um, right. And that's a good thing. But, you know, if if it also takes drunk drivers off the road, then that's also a really good thing.
1: Right. I I don't have a problem with it more. More so, I think it was just the, just, the execution of the message. Yeah, no, <laughs> just,
2: I, I, yeah, I think just, you're right there.
1: Didn't didn't work for me um so yeah i, I agree we're definitely going to see more autonomy and and sort of more tempered enthusiasm for it which is just good that's what we need um I, i'm curious too because you know like we talked about earlier with with faraday future um we're gonna see this, this sort of wild west of little fledgling concerns popping up making a splash and then sort of flaming out or getting bought out, you know, and so that that's a cycle we're going to see, I think, throughout 2017.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Faraday's Faraday's going to be an interesting one to watch. Um, I'll be going to their reveal of their uh, their production model tomorrow night uh, in Las Vegas. And uh, so <laughs> it'll be it'll be interesting to see uh, what they have to show and what they have to say. You know, I, I suspect that they're probably not going to have a whole lot to say about the the business situation, I think they're, they're going to deflect those questions, but um, we'll see, you know, what they have to show with the vehicle. And if they have anything to say about pricing and, and production volumes and, you know, when it's really going to be ready. Um, I, you know, I hope that they succeed. You know, like I've said before, you know, I know a number of people that work there um, and, you know, they've they've got a lot of really smart engineers uh, that are capable of doing great work you know, given the, given the opportunity and the resources. Um, So it'll be interesting to see if they get those opportunities, you know, before, you know, before the company goes belly up.
1: Well, you know, everybody forgets early Tesla too. Like this is right now, Tesla can kind of, they're the Apple of the car industry, right? Uh, They shed a bunch of talent and there was a lot of uh, back and forth early on um, at Tesla as well, like it's it's it can be messy to create something like an automaker.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's it does it's, a, it's a really money. complex business. You know, I mean there's yeah. a, you know, unlike you know building software, you know, just building an app or a social network, you know, it's it's actually a lot harder to build a car, um, you know, because you've got the software component, but there's also hardware that you have to manufacture, and you know the 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 hardware has to be safe and reliable. Um, you know, customers are not going to accept, um, you know, unreliable hardware, you know, for any length of time, especially in the mainstream segments. You know, it's there's this weird, you know, it, it's counterintuitive, but more expensive cars, customers of more expensive cars are are strangely enough, generally willing to cut those cars more slack when they don't work because right,
1: it's a feature, not a bug. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the thing is, you know, affluent customers tend to have multiple vehicles. And so yeah. if one particular vehicle isn't working, it's not as big a deal to them. But, right. you know, for a customer buying a thirty thousand dollar car, thirty five thousand dollar car, um, they tend to be more reliant on that car actually working every day You know, when they've got to get up and go to work. Uh, and if it doesn't work, you know, if it doesn't start um, or, you know, if it you know, if the, the heating doesn't work or whatever it might be, uh, the doors don't open. Um, they're not going to be as tolerant of that as somebody buying a $120,000 car. So, you know, I mean, uh, I think, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how Tesla deals with that because, you know, they've had a lot of quality issues with the, both the model S and the model X. Um, and you know, they, they plan to launch the model three before the end of this year. Um, uh, and I'll be curious to see if they can actually build those cars reliably and in volume and, and profitably. Um, which, you know, that's, that's the other thing, you know, one one of our, uh, listeners, uh, John on Twitter, you know, uh, made a comment that you know, he was amazed that many big automakers still aren't taking electric cars seriously. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's true. I think every automaker is taking electric cars seriously. The problem is that, um, it's very hard. Still, you know, as much as much progress has been made in bringing down the cost of batteries and motors and power electronics, um, they're still more expensive than building an internal combustion engine car. I mean, that gap is closing, and it's going to continue to close at least through the mid twenty twenties. You know, when we'll probably reach a crossover point, but um, for now, you know, EVs just are not as profitable to build. You know, or or profitable at all. And, you know, especially when you're looking at a market, you know, that's flattening out, you know, then, you know, there's not, there's not going to be any projected growth in the overall market, which means that if you've got to, if you're going to grow your own, you know, if any, for any one company to grow its volumes, it's got, it's got to take that from somebody else, which makes it a lot harder and a lot more expensive. Um, You know, so you're going to start seeing, you know, probably some more incentive spending that's going to make it even tougher to be able to make the business case for EVs, you know, especially, you know, I mean, the car business is not a generally a high margin business anyway, you know, which is one of the reasons why I've always been skeptical that Apple would get into the car business. I mean, you know, you're lucky to make, you know, low you know, mid single digit margins, you know, five or six percent um, net margins in the car business. Um, you know, if you if you can if you can make eight percent margins, you're doing pretty good. Yeah, for a company like Apple, it's used to 40 percent margins. You know, that's they're going to look at that. That's that's not going to look good. And now if you're looking at doing EVs, you know, where the margins tend to be negative, um, that makes it even tougher. So, you know, I think, you know, manufacturers are working on the the technology. Um, You know, they're putting out what they need to to uh, meet the regulatory requirements. Um, And they're trying to figure out how they can ramp this stuff up and make it both more attractive to consumers and at the same time, be able to actually make money doing it. Because if you can't, yeah. that's the thing for a business. If you can't make a profit, you know, then you're not going to be able to stay in business. At some point you got to right. make money. And, and,
1: right. Yeah. And it like, that's, that's the thing too. Like you're seeing right now, um, a lot of heat from the, the, the new, the newcomers. Um, GM and Ford and uh you know Toyota and uh you know Volkswagen they're all working on this stuff as well they're but they they need to take a more measured sort of mature approach to it I guess where they they can't just burn lots of cash and fail fast
2: yeah <laughs> you know like that's that's they, not they've been there and done that
1: yeah um,
2: and so like
1: they, they're definitely, I, I think it's wrong to say that they're ignoring it. They're taking a more, I don't even want to say more cautious approach, but just a more, a more mature business approach. And I don't mean that in the sense that they're, uh, the, the new co- newcomer companies are, um, immature as in childish. They're just, they're not mature business concerns. So that, that benefits them in some ways, uh, cause you know, they have that infusion of, of, you know, investor money or like you were, we, we, had chatted about this briefly before uh we started recording you know like tesla's stock price is is way high so you can raise money from the stock market until the stock price uh you know starts to to fall and then you you've kind of milked that cow um but you know compare compare the stock price of tesla to the stock price of general motors and take there's there's your capitalization right there uh so it 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 will we'll see what happens um I I wonder and I don't want to get very political at this point, uh, but I do wonder what 2017 holds in terms of uh, regulations. Are we going to see emission standards and, uh, you know, fuel economy rolled back in some way? Uh, it's been it's been talked about. So
2: that yeah, I mean, that that that's, that's certainly a, a distinct possibility, um, you know certainly the automakers would like to see that happen or at least the incumbent automakers would like to see that happen. Um, And they, you know, the incoming administration has indicated that they would not be averse to such a change. Uh, So, you know, we'll see, uh, you know, one thing that you know we did see, even from the current administration uh, in the last couple of weeks, is that they did. You know there was supposed to be a, a ramp up in the fines for missing the cafe targets uh, starting this year, and they pushed that out to 2019. So, uh, you know, it, it was going to get a lot more expensive for car makers to to miss those targets. Um, but now, you know, they they've got a little more breathing room, you know, they can miss the targets and it, they won't, the fines they have to pay won't be as huge. Um, uh, but you know, that also, you know, disincentivizes them from doing some of the other things that they, that they're going to need to do. Uh, so, you know, the, one of the things that they're going to have to deal with is, you know, even if cafe regulations are rolled back, they still have to, um, deal with the, the conflicts, you know, between California Um, And the federal government, you know, California has got their zero emissions vehicles mandates. um, And, you know, the feds, you know, if they roll back cafe, you know, they still got to sell plug in vehicles in California.
1: Yeah. And uh, that's that's not going away without another state's rights fight. Right. (laughs) So good luck with that. Well, (laughs) the other thing, too,
2: is, um, you know, the you have to keep in mind that it's a global industry. And so even if cafe regulations are rolled back here in the States, car makers are still developing the technologies for more efficient vehicles, whether it's internal combustion or battery electric or fuel cells or whatever it might be, because they need those vehicles for the rest of the world. They need them for China. They need them for Japan. They need them for Europe. Um, Everywhere else, you know, they're, they're not rolling back their targets, you know, so the technology is still going to be developed. It's just a question of, whether or not it gets deployed in the U S
1: yeah. And I think that, you know, it's funny. We we've talked about China a bit. Um, I, I think that they're on the cusp of doing some things to reduce their air pollution. So, uh, I mean, and maybe not just 2017, so. <laughs> but soon. Yeah. I think, you know, it's a problem and it's getting global notice and, and China knows that it's a problem. And you're going to, they're at a, at a certain point, they're going to have to fish a cut bait and they're, they're going to, have to start doing some things that, that improve the, the air quality there. Um, I don't know when that is. Um, and, and, you know, maybe it's not just this year, but I, I feel like that's coming, um, whether or not it's through internal pressure from, from citizens to the government, which is a little difficult in China, but, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what, what happens there. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, do you, do you think that, uh, we're, it would be a good idea, I guess, to like, how do you how do you where do you stand in terms of like, uh, you know, the automakers are lobbying to roll back efficiency and, and uh, uh, you know, fuel economy standards. Where do, where do you stand on that?
2: You know, uh, my my preference would be to see, you know, the regulations stay as they are. Um, but I also, you know, I, I look at the the marketplace, you know, the, the reality of the marketplace is that, you know gas is cheap in this country um yeah. which makes it you know and as the the um fuel economy standards get tougher and tougher it's going to get more expensive to to meet those targets you know i mean well they, and, they've and already, it's going
1: to be more expensive yeah i'm uh, sorry um it's going to be more expensive for those who can least afford it like that's yeah. that's one of the issues with this stuff is like it it puts the squeeze on not on the, the people who can afford it it puts the squeeze on the people who, who you know, hardly can afford it. right.
2: So it's... You know, I mean, the average price of uh, the average transaction price of new cars last year was over thirty four thousand um, dollars. You know, that's that's not inexpensive, um, and you know, it's it's hard for you know, especially you know, when you consider that um, you know, one one of the big reasons why you know uh, Donald Trump won the election is because there's a lot of people in this country that you know they're even as The economy as a whole has largely recovered from the recession of 2008, 2009. It, that recovery hasn't been spread equally. I mean, that that's why there was support for Trump and support for Bernie Sanders on the other side, uh, because there's a lot of people who have not felt the benefits of the recovery. And, you know, those people can't afford to buy new cars. And, you know the the automakers have picked most of the low hanging fruit in terms of trying to you know get bang for their buck in terms of fuel efficiency improvements and so every additional mile per gallon that they have to achieve is going to cost more to do yeah and yeah. Uh, you know so you know when gas is cheap you know it's hard to get people to you know pay up that extra money for more efficient vehicles you know if they can buy a cheaper vehicle that is not as efficient they're likely to go in that direction instead yeah so right, which you
1: know, it's sort of like that that you know it closes the circle where it keeps people working yeah to build the cars to sell the cars to you know and i know that a couple of weeks ago i was arguing for like oh, you know, we need to crank up and have another uh fuel crisis and, and part of my reasoning for that is is because it will foster a better long-term um result uh, once we learn to be more responsible with our our resources, and and so like I certainly want to keep the efficiency standards in place, and and uh, e- even in, increase them as the the standards are supposed to to increase. But I do understand that there's you know a lot of socioeconomic stuff going on as well, and it's just I didn't mean to pin you down in particular on the uh, uh, the standards uh, as well. But yeah, I mean, there's no easy solution, I
2: suppose. Nope. <laughs> So on, on uh, that note, why don't we get to yeah. uh, another reader question?
1: Uh, I was going to say let's let's pick some stuff that we can actually easily solve, <laughs> or, or, or at, at least, least comment on. Like, yeah. Right. Uh, all right. Which one did you want to do? Uh, you do the, let's uh, see.
2: How about uh, Jonathan's question um, about uh, Cayman or ZL1? Uh, which would you guys buy and why? <sighs> hmm. Probably
1: the Cayman because you can see out of it.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually a very good point. You know, you, you can see out of a Cayman a lot easier than you can see out of a, a Camaro. You know, forward visibility in the new Camaro, the 6th Gen Camaro is a lot better than it was on the last one. But visibility to the rear is still atrocious. Um,
1: and uh, yeah, they're, they're two different things, really, too. Like the Cayman the Cayman is a little bit more precise, although the the new Camaro is... Pretty badass in terms of a performance, car too. So, uh, that's, that's, you hmm. know, they're,
2: they're, they're very different cars, you know, with very different flavors. Um, I've only had a very brief drive in a Cayman um, and I haven't driven the, the ZL1 at all yet. Um, I, you know, <clears throat> I think, <laughs> you know, from, from in terms of outright speed, the ZL1 is, you know, almost certainly going to be faster. It's certainly going to be faster in a straight line, and, and then right, probably, you know, it, and you know, on, even on the track. Um, on the other hand, you know, um, I think its its limits are. It's one of the, you know, like a lot of cars today. Its limits are so high that you know, even on the track, most drivers are not really going to be able to explore those limits without getting themselves, you know, pushing so hard that they, you know, if when they go past the limits, that you know they get into some serious trouble um whereas you know i think you know the cayman's limits are going to be pretty high as well but you know not as high you know so it's that classic thing of it's more fun to drive a slow car fast than a fast car slow you know the cayman is certainly by no means slow but
1: yeah well well, the cayman now has like 100 horsepower almost on its uh it's the last last year's model too with the new turbo four
2: yeah so, um, um, but I, I think, hmm. I think you could probably, you know, more reasonably explore the capabilities of a Cayman than you could the ZL one. So depend, depends what you're looking for. I mean, they're, they, you know, they're totally different cars with totally different personalities and, you know, some driver it's going to, each one's going to appeal to different kinds of drivers.
1: Yeah.
2: Or you could uh, just get one of each.
1: I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of talking myself into both. I can really, I love the sound of a V8. I love the the, the torque. And, and certainly GM has one of the best uh, V8s. Uh, yeah, I love the look of the Camaro, regardless of how functional it is. Um, you know, and the Porsche. Uh, so I'm less sold on the turbo four-cylinder Porsches. They certainly perform, and I'm sure they're great, you know, drivers but i feel like they've lost something you know the the part of the joy of of the boxster and the cayman was just that that engine that seems on paper to be wimpy but from behind the wheel it's plenty strong and it just it has that deep well of you know it has has big lungs you Mm -hmm. know it it just keeps going and going and going and going where the the turbo four like it's kind of like you've you've got a wrx powered cayman now (laughs) it's okay yeah
2: just, you know, know one one of the things about about cars and and driving you know i mean as as good as electric vehicles are in so many respects um yeah i mean certainly you know performance possibilities out of an electric motor are enormous uh as we've talked about before but um you know there's there's just something so visceral visceral about a great internal combustion engine know, you know, uh, you know for, for some people they don't they just don't care but you know i mean if you really love to drive you know the the sound you know and the the feeling of a great engine is something you just can't duplicate um in an ev unfortunately
1: yeah and, and you know it's like it, that's not the only realm that that kind of thing is is uh is important you know you hear musicians talk and we get you know, we'll get real geeky about, you know, the difference between a Telecaster and a Les Paul. And we'll talk about minutiae. And at a certain point that like, people are just like, well, they're, they're guitars.
2: But, you know, when you start talking about analog stuff, you know, whether it's a musical instrument or a car or, you know, whatever, you know, a pen, you know, versus, yeah. you know, writing on a keyboard. Um, you know, there's, you know, <laughs> humans are, are tactile animals. And, you know, we we respond to to stimuli, uh, you know, a lot of different kinds of stimuli. I mean, we've got we've got five senses and we respond to all of them. And, um, you know, it's I mean, there, there's a reason why, you know, over the last hundred years or so, you know, cars have built up the kind of appeal that they have, because there's there's something raw and emotional about it that, you know. Dry, you know, riding around in an autonomous pod is never going to. Replicate.
1: See, that's what I want. I want the Telecaster of automobiles, which I guess would give me like a 53 Chevy or <laughs> uh, with the Stoke Bolt 6. Uh, yeah, all right. So I don't think On the other really hand, the ZL1 is question. never going to give you a vapor yeah. lock. So we, we <laughs> you know, that's part of the experience. It's, uh, yeah. It's like the old tube amplifier that shocks you when you touch the <laughs> chassis because you've become the path to ground. Um, yeah, I don't know if we answered that question effectively or not. Um,
2: Who cares? We had fun of, talking yeah, about it.
1: Yeah, like catch me on, you know, catch me tomorrow. I'll have a different answer <laughs> for that one, for whatever. Uh, there was a lighting question too, right? A headlight question?
2: Uh, yeah, let's see. Um, uh, let's see. Recently, uh, IHS and NHTSA, um, I think it was actually IHS, uh, came out with a report that's been critical of the adequacy of headlights in a lot of today's cars. Um, what makes for effective headlight design are the newer technologies like HID and led really better lighting sources than halogen. Um, are there drawbacks to either uh, leds or HIDs? Um, you know, I, I don't think it's the, any, any particular technology that is the fundamental problem. Um, you know, I mean, you know, an led or an HID or a halogen, you know, they can all be very effective. You know, and I think generally LEDs are of, of those are the best. Um, yeah, I'll agree with that. You know, they're certainly more consistent. Um, you can you can control the, the, the lighting uh, color and and intensity a lot better. Um, you know, and I think it's more of an issue of, you know, the design of the whole lamp system. Um, yeah. You know, the you know, the, the reflectors and, and, you know, where the light is projected, that is the issue you know so it's it's not so much led that's the problem but it's it's the way it's integrated into the rest of the system um yeah and i think in some cases um you know some manufacturers have made some some functional sacrifices um in you know in in order to get certain um design um you know so they've sacrificed function for design um, which yeah. just is not never a good thing, you know, when you're talking about lights.
1: Well, I think it was it was crossovers that were particularly knocked for their lighting performance. Um, and so there's a few things going on. Uh, halogen systems, uh, it's definitely in no matter what your illumination source is, the lens and reflector or, you know, projector and lens, depending on, on what the, the system is. Uh, that whole thing, like you said, has has a big difference. Uh, impact on it you can't just change one thing and expect it to be you know you can't just you see cars driving around with hid bulbs in a halogen housing and like they, they blind the crap out of you because they're not that's not what they're designed for um so yes it's it's the beam pattern and this is why back in the days of of halogens i would buy the off-road you know, CBA housings, the H4 housings. And I would put my H4 bulbs in it and uh, you need to get a very sharp cut off and it tilts up to the, to the right. Um, That that's an illegal beam pattern for the, you know, automakers to put out. There's, there's, this was FMVSS 108. Uh, There's lighting standard and the beam pattern for us lights is, it hadn't been good and it wasn't harmonized with Europe and the European Systems had a much better uh, beam pattern and, and you know, more, more well thought out design. Uh, so we would always retrofit our cars to European lights uh, and be able to see better, you know, further with the crisper cut off. And, and um, the other thing that you have to understand is, is the intensity of the light. Um, halogens, they are the max wattage halogen you can have is a 60 watt high beam. Uh, so you're driving at night with your high beams on if you have halogens, you've only got 120 watts of light.
2: <laughs> that's not a whole that's not a whole lot when you're driving it at night, you know, especially Correct. at any speed.
1: Right. Um so I mean if you have four lights on you've got more than that. You've got 240 watts of light. That's still like when I go and light a shoot, uh, if I've got a 240 watt instrument, that is a backlight. <laughs> <laughs> it gives somebody a little glow. Uh, my main instruments are like 1000 watts, sometimes 10,000 watts. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, um, that's really the importance of the, the reflector and the lens. Uh, HIDs came about because, A, they're more efficient. They run cool because wattage uh, it's, it's a measure of heat. So the the problem I would have when I would run my H4s with 130 watt high beams, yeah, I could burn the paint off the trunk lid of the car in front of me. I could see for miles. I also cracked the lenses of the housings because <laughs> they couldn't dissipate the heat, and and that's that's a problem. I also had to run them off relays because there's when you you know Ohm's law when you draw that much wattage, you're also drawing a ton of current at 12 volts, and so you you'll melt the wiring if you're not careful. Um, so yes, HIDs run cooler. They they actually run at very high voltage. They have ballasts. They run. Uh, the ballast lights them off and then they, they consume very little energy as they, they run. There's all kinds of electromechanical trickery with an HID, which is why I think you're right with LEDs being sort of the best of, of all worlds. Um, you know, high beams on an HID, basically they, they actually physically move either the reflector or, or, you know, the, the beam pattern changes, but you're not getting a more intense light. You're just flipping up the, the actual pattern. Um, LEDs are they're very efficient Uh, up until recently. We didn't have the technology to make it work uh, in a headlight, but now now we do. Um, The the one thing I will say about LEDs and HIDs is they don't run hot enough in the winter to melt the ice and snow off the housings. (laughs) (laughs) So they cake up, uh, which does suck, but. Yeah. I don't know. Did I, I I think I I got there, but I feel like I went the long way.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, I I think, (laughs) I think you actually, from a technical standpoint, I think you actually explained some stuff better than I could, you know, just because of your experience as a video producer. Um, you know, so you've got a lot of experience with lighting. Um, you know, one, one other thing about LEDs, um, you know, they, they actually, um, can work better at higher voltages, higher than 12 volts, and so you know one of the and and, and one of the another driving factor for the adoption of 48 volt systems um in uh in future vehicles uh is to better support led lights um you know so they they're they're more efficient that way i guess uh what
1: makes them better above 12 volts because like every every led i've ever hooked up to a nine volt battery has gone up in smoke instantly
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I was talking to a couple engineers at a conference earlier this year and I have to go back and look at my notes, but apparently they, they do, um, work better at higher voltages. Uh, they're more efficient at higher voltages. Huh? So interesting. May, you know, maybe it, it has to do with, you know, being able to run lower current, uh, higher voltage, uh, and probably. Higher, higher voltage and lower current. Um, yeah,
1: yeah well, so, and, and two, I guess that the thing that when I'm hooking up to a nine volt battery, that's DC, um, the way leds are driven in the automotive environment is they use a pulse width modulation circuit okay that's why like cadillac taillights mm-hmm. well, uh, when you catch them in yeah you catch them in your peripheral vision that's because the the uh frequency of that circuit is too low okay so it's 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 cuz it's a pulse width modulation is basically it's it's switching yep. on and off yep. on and off on and off and on, on so the frequency with which it switches is too low and your peripheral vision is actually a lot more sensitive than your forward vision, so that's why if you if you ever flicker. if
2: you ever shoot video of a car with uh, LED lights, um, and you go back oh, yeah, and watch flicker. the video, yeah. you'll see the video you'll see the lights flickering um, because yep. of the, the the PWM control. Yeah,
1: and you can dial that out with shutter sometimes. Yeah, um, but that screws up your your exposure. But anyway, sorry, I <laughs> didn't mean to get you off track. But so that that I guess that's why you can use a high voltage and um, and not blow them up too, because you're still going to have a Uh, pulse width modulation to make sure that you're not running them at a constant duty cycle so
2: yeah all right all right and (laughs) and one one other advantage to leds is they have much longer lifespan than other bulb technologies too so
1: yes uh and all the retrofits i love seeing cars with retrofit led like 1157 bulbs um that if they don't put the load resistor in there as well they just you know it's it's the the flasher is designed for the old you know tungsten bulbs so there's there's actually no current being drawn really so it just flash super fast it's like tick 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 it, it freaks out bulb sensor warnings and stuff
2: yeah Oh lovely um,
1: yeah so all right um we've rambled the crap out of a lighting question uh there was one more was the oh yes there was the facebook question um and that's basically just uh what car is not good enough to buy but you don't mind getting as a rental um
2: i mean isn't that every camry um I- yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, uh, I uh, actually, the, the only time I've rented a car recently uh, was during a family vacation in Puerto Rico last February. Uh, we had a Ford Explorer because um, he had five of us and uh, all of our stuff. And, um, you know, that, you know, that was good for for that trip. Um, but, you know, certainly like the Explorer, uh, you know, I actually kind of like the Explorer. Um, but, uh, it, you know, for me, it's not something I would gen- generally want to own.
1: Yeah, that's not a car I would buy. I test her that and I was like, nope, not going to buy this. Um, I'm trying to think of rentals I had. I mean, I had an Avenger, which is definitely a car. It's a fine rental. <laughs> it's fine. It's I mean, it has a big trunk. It's relatively efficient like it That in terms of being a rental car. Yeah, it's, it's perfect
2: um the reality is that you know there there are very few you know new vehicles today that you know are really bad um and uh you know so pretty much anything almost anything you're going to find in a even in a rental fleet is not going to be a terrible car
1: i will say anybody i know who knows what i do and has gotten the chrysler 200 as a rental has complained to me about the 200 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i've been like i i can't help you like i uh, yeah it's a nice enough little car but they like i was like it's it's just it's not a great vehicle yeah. <laughs> i like think it's that's why it's dying
2: it's already um, dead
1: yeah uh our guy dan who does some some stuff for not me the other dan uh who does some stuff for us on on facebook he says his favorite rental is a kia soul um that is a car i would buy
2: yeah actually, actually. i like the soul a lot soul is a um, really really nice car
1: and he likes uh, the Toyota 4Runner, which is a vehicle I would not buy just because that's it's, it's kind of like it's like buying a Greyhound and making them a lap dog. Like, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah, just I, I can't do that vehicle justice. I mean, I do have a Jeep, which I, you know, kind of feel bad for that thing, too. Uh, let's see what else does he say? Uh, Chevy, Sonic and Cruise. Um, I don't know that I'd buy the Cruise, but I i'd be seriously considering it i like the cruise a lot cruise,
2: cruise is good and a friend of mine rich truitt who uh, writes for automotive oh, news yeah. uh he recently a couple of months ago bought uh, a new cruise hatchback uh 1.4 liter with a six-speed manual and he's really happy with it
1: yeah that's a great car yeah. i mean it's got cargo room and it's probably decently fun to drive and i was impressed with the cruise so uh yeah, there we go. So thanks for the questions. And um, Sam's going to fly out of here. So I think we should wrap this one up. Uh, this is episode nine. So we're, we're going to do ten next week. So certainly uh, keep the, uh, the questions coming on, on Facebook and, and Twitter and email and however else you get them to us, get them to us and, and we'll try to answer them.
2: All right. And we will talk to you next week uh, with some wrap up of uh, what I see in the next few days at CES uh, and maybe a bit of a preview of the uh, Detroit Auto Show. All
1: right. Thanks for listening. All right. Good
0: night. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.